Welcome everybody to Common Sense Christianity. As always, I'm your host, Ethan Foster, here today with another episode. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends, family, or anyone that's interested in religious and Christian topics. Also, if you want to contact us, you can email us at commonsensechristianitypodcast at gmail.com. And I know it's the day after Christmas, but I, I also know you're all sad, depressed, whatever you're going through. The day after Christmas is one of the worst times of the year, at least for me. But hopefully I will brighten up your day. And I I know this pertains to Christmas and this should be on the day of Christmas. But I'm going to go and read it. Matthew 1 verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call him Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. And that is the whole message of the gospel right there very Quickly, a man named Jesus living 2,000 years ago, and he will sacrifice himself for the world so that they will be saved from the sins. And I'm going to talk about uh, the topic that we've been talking about so much on this show. Again, I am talking about evolution, but hopefully this episode is more interesting than our past evolution episodes. So I've read Norman L. Geisler and Dr. Frank's Turk book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, and it truly is, and I say this with no sarcasm it truly is a fantastic book and i highly recommend it so but it's no fun to state what i agree with them on because i agree with them on a many a multitude of things except this one main issue so today i'm criticizing their views on evolution so for they make the criticisms in their uh in their book about natural selection. And they, they make several arguments, but let me go ahead and read uh, what I have highlighted in the book for you today. So Darwin is saying this has happened by natural selection, but the term natural selection is a misnomer. Since the process of evolution, by definition, without intelligence, there is no selection at all going on. It's a blind process. The term natural selection simply means that the fittest creature survives. So what? That's true by definition. The fittest survive. This is called a tautology, a circular argument that doesn't prove anything. Logically, these are the creatures that are best equipped genetically or structurally to deal with changing environmental conditions. That's why they survive. So there's not much wrong with what I just read here. Now, uh, of course, I've made this criticism on my YouTube channel. I don't have it anymore, so don't go look for it. But I made this criticism, and atheists get furious whenever you say that natural selection without a god is random. Because they don't like that word random. Because randomness doesn't create anything complex. It just creates more randomness. A whole jumble of things, if you want to put it that way. But natural selection... Is random now. In my view, and this is going to sound a little strange, there can be an organized type of random or a chaotic type of random. So, natural selection is an organized type of random. It describes, uh, well, let, let me just read the definition for you: the process whereby organisms better adapted to their environment tend to survive and produce more offspring. That, I mean, that and that's undeniable scientifically and i think everybody can agree with that but again as i've always been saying this entire series on evolution uh we have to look at the at the age of the earth which we won't do this episode because i've discussed it enough and we'll go in and 
just leave it there. So it continues to, to say, as an example of natural selection, consider what happens to bacteria attacked by antibiotics. When bacteria survive a bout with antibiotics and multiply, that surviving group of bacteria may be resistant to that antibiotic. That surviving bacteria are resistant to the antibiotic because the parent bacteria possess the genetic cap capacity to resist or a rare biochemical mutation somehow helped it survive. We say rare because mutations are nearly always harmful. Since the sensitive bacteria die, the surviving bacteria multiply and now dominate. Darwinists say that the surviving bacteria has evolved. Having adapted to the environment, the surviving bacteria provide us with an example of evolution. Fair enough, but what kind of evolution? The answer we're about to give is absolutely critical. In fact, outside of the philosophical presuppositions we've been exposing and defining evolution. It's perhaps the greatest point of confusion in the creation-evolution controversy. This is where Darwin errors and false claims begin to multiply like bacteria, if not checked by those who believe observation is important to science. Here's what observation tells us. The surviving bacteria always say bacteria. They do not involve in another type of into another type of organism. That would be macroevolution. Natural selection has never been observed to create new types. Okay, so there's a lot of fair points here. I, I will admit there is no observational evidence of macroevolution. Of course, I don't think anyone would say that there's any observational evidence. So they admit a lot of things here. Of course, things evolve. Microevolution. We can all agree on microevolution. And it is, of course, when you're having discussions with atheists, Darwinists, whatever the heck you want to call them, or even with Christians themselves, you need to set a, de uh, a definition for evolution. And Dr. Turek's and Norman Geisler's definition, and my definition too, is change over time. But it also depends on the amount of time. When you have, uh, when you have a short amount of time and things. Uh, do microevolution, of course they're not going to change species, but if the earth truly is billions, years, billions of years old, then microevolution over a long, long period of time will eventually commit macroevolution, which I was watching a Richard Dawkins lecture, and someone asked him about how you define this species, which I've never really thought about, and, well, define a new species coming about, and he's, he basically sums it up this way, uh, a species cannot interbreed with the another with that species that it came from anymore. So there's too much of a genetic difference of some sort. So that would be a good definition to to put for it. But they make this argument here. So it all depends on your worldview in a sense. Now, when it comes to observation, you can't observe anything. Doctor Turk does this in his lectures all the time. There's uh. There is forensic science where you look at what's left, left from the past, and you make assumptions based on that evidence. So you look at the fossils, and I make this, so, this argument so many times. It's, I have not seen a way to get past this. Uh, when you have, let's just say, a dinosaur layer, and then let, let's just say, for example, beneath that there's trilobites. But you won't see the dinosaur with the trilobites, and you won't see the trilobites with the dinosaurs, because there's um, they aren't in the same time frame. Why are they separate? Why is one always below the other? 
There's no mixing. You won't find trilobites above the dinosaur layer. There is a reason for this. So it sets up a time scale. Now, you may not be able to see all the transitions. You may not be able to see all of uh, the fossils, all of the life forms. You may not even be able to see, determine the exact time. But you can reasonably assume that one species existed before another species. And it is also very reasonable to assume that one came from the other. Like when you look at modern day uh, spiders and then look at prehistoric trilobites, you can see a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. But because of their similarities, you can see the resemblance between them. Or DNA evidence. Uh, DNA is a very powerful uh, tool. And th in this book, they say it's evidence of a common designer. But when you see the similarity between all our genetic codes, it looks to point to a common ancestor because that makes more sense. Like Richard Dawkins pointed it out to this creationist Wendy Wright. When uh, you look at a chimpanzee's DNA, it's almost identical to ours. There's just a little bit of a difference. Then a little less with the monkey, a little less with the rat, and so on and so forth. It keeps getting bigger of a difference because it shows it branches in the ev evolutionary tree. As you go along farther back, our common ancestor with chimpanzees split off, I believe, uh, 7 million years ago. But uh, don't quote me on that. But I, I believe that is where the genetic split happened. So it, it's very important to understand the basics of evolution in order to make a, a reasonable opinion on the matter. So with that, let's go ahead and continue. So this, I've already talked about transitional fossils, but I guess I'll talk about it a bit more, which is the second point they make in here. So you don't see that many transitional fossils. I will admit that. You don't see a half reptile, half bird, or half amphibian, half reptile, because that's not how it works. The, the genetic variation, the genetic mutation. So there's two or three factors going on in evolution. And there is a genetic mutation, genetic variation, which can be the same thing. Uh, but as you're passed down, as uh, creatures reproduce, there's always going to be genetic variation, but not always genetic mutation. And there is also the environmental factors playing in with that. So if you were to put an animal in a different environment, it either adapts or dies. And if it does adapt and other animals don't adapt, the one that does adapt will more likely survive and have its genes passed. So the stronger genes are passed on. And that's evolution. That's evolving. Going back to the bacteria, the, the bacteria that are resistant to the antibiotics will survive because the ones that aren't will die from the antibiotics. That is evolution. Now, going back to transitional fossils, you may not always see the transition. There are transitional fossils. I, I always use Archaeopteryx as an example in this because it's the best example. Archaeopteryx, dinosaur and bird-like. It has feathers, but it has a dinosaur-shaped mouth. It flew, but it has more of the shape of a dinosaur. When you, look, when you begin to study dinosaur fossils, you see the similarity between them and birds. In fact, scientists are now thinking that T-Rex had some sort of feathers. Not like bird feathers, but little feathers. Most dinosaurs were, looked a lot more bird-like. You can look at their bones. You can see the huge amounts of similarity. And that's how we know now that birds are a type of dinosaur. They're, they're the last dinosaurs that are alive. It's almost uh, undeniable. 
uh, to suggest that that isn't true. And we'll move on to their one of their last arguments. It's it's a pretty big chapter, and it's a very interesting chapter to read. I quite enjoyed reading this chapter and challenging my beliefs, most importantly. But they mention genetic limits. So they say Darwinists say that microevolution within types proves that macroevolution has occurred. If these small changes can occur over a short period of time, think what natural selection can do over a long period of time. Unfortunately for Darwinists, genetic limits seem to be built into the basic types. For example, dog breeders always encounter genetic limits when they intelligently attempt to create new breeds of dogs. Dogs may range in size from the I'm not even reading that. To the Great Dane. Oh, the the Chihuahua. Man, I just can't think right now. (laughs) But despite the best attempts of intelligent breeders, dogs always remain dogs. Likewise, despite the best efforts of intelligent scientists to manipulate fruit flies, their their experiments have never turned down any. Okay, sorry for that interruption. I forgot where we last uh, started, but I have an idea, so I'm just going to continue reading here. Likewise, despite the best efforts of intelligent scientists to manipulate fruit flies, their experiments have never turned out anything but more fruit flies and usually crippled ones at that. This is especially significant because the short life of fruit flies allows scientists to test many generations of genetic variation in a short period of time. Most importantly, the comparison between natural selection and the artificial selection that breeders do is completely invalid. Uh, the biggest difference is that the fact is the fact that artificial selection is intelligently guided, while natural selection is not. And we'll we'll take a a break, I guess, with, with that. So there's a lot of things going on there, and if you were to have done no research about evolution, then that would seem that would close the case on it, really. And it's a very good point that that uh, they make, and it was very convincing for me. But see, here's the problem: when scientists experiment with the fruit flies in the lab, one, it takes a lot more generations than scientists can produce. Two, it also depends on environment. Three, genetic mutation is very important, even if you randomly do it. Yes, most mutations are harmful, but eventually you get the good one, and the good one carries on. The beneficial one carries on, and more animals get that good mutation, and that promotes the survival of this species. If animals don't evolve, they die. And again, it never addresses in this chapter uh, the problems I have pointed out with the creationists, well, with the young earth or creationist point of view. I believe there is God guiding it. I do not think evolution is very possible without a creator or anything in the universe itself. So I think God provides a great explanation for why everything is here. And uh, that sounds like God of the gaps. You know what? I have a God of the gaps episode in answering atheist objections. I'm not even getting into that right now. You can go check out the earlier episodes. I'm not sure exactly which one. But, again, this, this ignores uh, how long evolution has to take. Yes, microevolution happens naturally. You cannot reproduce that in a lab. You cannot reproduce evolution in a lab because evolution is a natural process. You cannot repeat natural 
that many natural processes in the lab. Evolution depends mostly on the environment. Genetic mutation and the environment. Those are two very important concepts of evolution. Without the environment, without changes in the environment, things most likely won't evolve because there is no need to. Human evolution has slowed down quite a bit because there has been no need. So the genetic mutations aren't passed on. So genetic mutations are eliminated because if they're bad, they need to be eliminated. That's why uh, homosexuality, I, well, it was proved a few months ago, isn't a genetically passed thing. Well, most of the time it isn't. There are a few cases where it might be. Because if it were, it's a evolutionary, unbeneficial, and natural selection, if it's a real process, would have selected against it. Because reproduction is, is the thing necessary for evolution, right? Without reproduction, there's no evolution. So there are cases like that. We see natural selection all the time, and I'm not going to give examples right now. Well, I, I guess it could. Just think of, of I don't know. Just think of a tree, right? Or a bean plant. Bean plants grow really fast. If one were to just have some random mutation that made it not grow leaves, this is just all hypothetical. I'm thinking off the top of my head. If it wasn't able to grow leaves, it would die because leaves help with the very important process of photosynthesis. It would die, right? So that mutation wouldn't pass on because it wouldn't have time to reproduce. It's, that is a form of natural selection. And, of course, I know who's doing the selecting God is. And he's created natural laws to help guide that without him always needing to intervene. But that's just one quick example. So the genetic limits argument is a very convincing argument. But when you really look into it, it's, it's not all that difficult to explain. So, finally, let me just read you this, um, this part of it. So... Confusing intelligent with non-intelligent processes is a common mistake of Darwinists. This is a case. Uh, this was a case when I Norm the uh, baby did humanist Paul Kurtz in 1986 on the topic of evolution. The debate, moderated by TV apologist John Ankerberg, produced this exchange regarding macroevolution. Geisler, my. Believing that life it came by chance is like believing that a Boeing 747 resulted from a tornado going through a junkyard. You have to have a lot of faith to believe that. Kurtz, well, the B Boeing 747 involved. We can go back to the Wright Brothers plane and see that the first kind of airplane they created. Geisler said created? Kurtz, yes, but. Annenberg, by intelligence or by chance? Kurtz there was a period of time in which these life forms changed. Ankerberg. But didn't they create those airplanes using intelligence cards? I was using the analogy that Dr. Geisler was using. And Geisler responds, Well, you're helping my argument. You ought to drop that one and find another one. Kurtz, no, no. I think the point I made is a good one because there have been changes from the simplest to the more complex airplanes. Geisler said, yes, but those changes were made by intelligent intervention. And I agree with Norman Geisler 100% right there. And it's a very good argument that he used. I used the Boeing 747 analogy before. Yes, 
I do believe that it evolves, it transforms with the guidance of intelligence. You start with the Wright brothers in 1903 with the first plane. That is still a complex machine, but it is simpler than a 747. But over time, as knowledge develops, well, not regarding God, but as life continues on, it gets more complex. But see, it doesn't get complex on its own. There has to be something guiding it, something pushing it forward. And I think that is necessary for evolution to happen and for the existence and the origin of life in the first place. And with that, we'll go ahead and close. Thank you guys for listening to Common Sense Christianity. Email me on Common Sense Christianity Podcast at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm Ethan Foster. This is Common Sense Christianity. You just listened to an episode of Common Sense Christianity. I'm your host, Ethan Foster, as always. And we love doing this for you guys. Please share the podcast with your friends and family if you like it. And frankly, even if you don't, uh, subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review so that more people can hear the word of God. And until next time, God bless you.